Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are so grateful for your son who faithfully endured the cross, faithfully endured that moment of brutal destruction. Truly the sacred head of heaven, the divine son was put to death on a cross and it was all for our good. Today we get to celebrate the joyful reality that your son now reigns. Thousands of years ago on this very day, he entered the city of Jerusalem to praises only to receive the wages of sin on our behalf. And now we get to benefit from his free decision to ascend to the, to the cross. We get to now worship you as the king, as the rightful king who reigns over all of creation from heaven. And we are so thankful for that fact. Lord, I do pray for this morning and for the week ahead as we celebrate Passion Week, this holy week. We pray that you would help us to, to leave uh, this week grateful, far more grateful than we already are for the work of your son. Help us to leave this morning thankful for all that you have accomplished in your son. And help us to Walk away encouraged. Encouraged to live lives that honor you. Encouraged to live lives empowered by the, the resurrection of the sacred head that was wounded. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey there, I am Josh. I am uh, one of the pastors here. I oversee our Kairos uh, ministry, which is our ministry for young adults and for college-aged uh, students here. And uh, the other thing I do is I help oversee our dis discipleship department at the church. Um, I'm going to be finishing our series in Hosea this morning, but before we do that, I have a lot of announcements because this is a, uh, an important week in the church. This is Holy Week. There's a lot going on uh, over the course of the next seven days, and I want to fill you in on what we have in store. So just walking progressively through the week, first of all, on Thursday... On Thursday evening, starting at 7 p.m., we have our Maundy Thursday service. Maundy is, uh, it's, it's derived from a Latin term, uh, mandatum, and it's the day on Thursday before Christ was crucified where he gave his disciples uh, the final commandment to love one another. It's also when he celebrated communion with them. And so in that service, we'll be singing, we'll be praying, we'll be reading scripture, and we will celebrate communion together. So I hope that you can make it to that service on Thursday night. Again, that's at 7 p.m. Uh, just so that you're aware, that service will be kid-friendly. We won't have childcare available. Bring your kids. We will enjoy them here in this room. Friday is the next event that we have coming up in our, in our week. Uh, and that is Good Friday. Our Good Friday service, again, will be at 7 o'clock in this room. Uh, the feeling of a Good Friday service is a bit different. It's a time to reflect on the death of Christ. And so it will be 
dark. The feeling will be dark. The actual, literal feeling, the ambience will be dark. To represent the darkness that encompassed the world when Christ was crucified. There was literal darkness, and in that uh, service on Friday, we will be reflecting on the death of Jesus. And that, uh, for that service, we will have childcare available, and you'll have to register for that. Our next service I want to make you aware of, like I said, there's, there's quite a few annou- announcements. Our next service is Sunday morning. We have a sunrise service, uh, and that is going to be at 6.30 a.m., now, I want to point out that is different from the 8.30 and the 10.30 service. The, the sunrise service will be a time of singing, a time of prayer, a, sign, a time to, to read the scriptures. It will be outside on the plaza. Uh, we encourage you to bring your chairs. We encourage you to enjoy that, that service. And then to also attend one of the later services at either 8.30 or 10.30. Uh, last year, if you were here, you might remember there were people like literally tailgating in between the sunrise service and the 8.30 service, like bacon, eggs, the whole nine yards. So if you want to join them, uh, you can bring your own grill or just kind of try to pull the stingy move and like bring a plate and see if they'll fill it up for you. Um, I'm not promising them or promising you on their behalf. I'm just saying you could try that, see how it goes. Um, All right, another announcement for this week. We're going to open up a prayer room that'll be available for for all of you uh, Monday through Friday this week. Again, it's a time for us to reflect Uh, This is Holy Week after all. And that room, uh, it's 244, it's in this building upstairs, and it will be available to you from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., okay? So all day. And during that schedule, we're also gonna have some pastors and elders available at specific times in case you wanna come in and uh, be prayed for or to pray with others. And so there'll be a pastor or an elder in room 244 Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., and then again from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. So you can come at any time if you wanna pray with someone or with a pastor in particular, again, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., or then 6 p.m. to 7. Okay, final announcement, I promise. Uh, Our business meeting is in two weeks from today. Our business meeting, again, that's April 24th, two weeks from today. It'll be in this room at 2 p.m., we will have childcare available if you register for it. And uh, that will be a, an opportunity for anyone to join, whether you're a member or whether you're a tender. We do expect members to come, but if you're, if you're just attending the church, you wanna know more, it's a great place to learn more about what's happening behind the scenes here at the church. Uh, that, again, is at 2 p.m. April 24th. Okay, like I said earlier, we are finishing our series in Hosea today. And if you notice, there's this imagery behind me of a beautiful vineyard. And so, uh, I wanna remind you, with it being spring right now, it is time to plant your gardens. Uh, If you haven't started planting, you might be a little late, but you still have a little bit of time. My my wife and I right now are going through the process of planting a garden. It's it's the first real season that we've had a, a garden bed at our house, and so we're excited for that. We did kind of a pilot trial run in the, in the fall, and we got a bunch of lettuce and kale, which my wife loves. It was okay, I guess. I like the lettuce. Kale, yeah. Um, if you're, if you're kind of green, you like that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, now is the time for that, right? Now is the time to plant gardens. And, and if you're into gardening, you know that the sole purpose of gardening 
is to produce vegetation. <laughs> Think about it. it you, you want fruit. You want produce. You want beautiful flowers. No one takes up a hobby like gardening so that they can have more opportunities to pull weeds, right? No one likes to take up the hobby of gardening so that they can merely plant a gardening bed, right? That, that's a really poor goal. If you just want to plant a gardening bed, yeah, okay, you're a different type, I guess, a different breed. Um, no one plants a garden so that they can go outside and water dirt, right? No, you, you have a clear goal in mind. You want to produce fruit. You want to produce uh, vegetables. You want beautiful flowers, which means if you have a crop that uh, has bare stalks uh, or no vegetation in it, then you have two options. Either you quit your gardening career or you solve the problem. Right? There's not really an option of just like carrying on with carrying on if like you're not really producing any crops. Like why, why waste your time? Really, your, your real options here are fix the problem or just give it up. Sell the garden bed that you built. Someone might want it. As we look at our passage, what we will see is that God is compared to a gardener. Right? He is a gardener. But in, in his garden, the option of giving up on a failed crop is not on the table. In God's, in God's uh, mentality, he has one goal in mind, and that is to produce a productive crop, and he will do whatever it takes in order to see that that happens. And that is what we read about today. We read about the fact that God will not settle for budless vines. Instead, he will make sure his vineyard is productive. Let's turn to our passage, Hosea 13, starting in four, verse 14, and going all the way to the end of the book. Let me, uh, let me read this for us. Hosea 13, beginning in verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though you may flourish among your brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will, not say, or we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take 
root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. All right, so as we look at this this conclusion in the book of Hosea, I want us to see the main thrust here. The main thrust of Hosea's message is that restoration follows judgment for the faithful. Again, restoration follows judgment for the faithful. God desires to restore his people, but in order to get there, he must judge the rampant injustice that has overtaken his people, the nation of Israel. And so in that train of thought, our passage really has four movements. First, in chapter 13, verses 14 through 16, we see detrimental judgment. Then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, we see hopeful repentance. In chapter 14, verses 4 through 8, we see gracious restoration. And then in the final verse of chapter 14, we see a final concluding comment that really wraps up the book. So let's start in chapter 13. Again, the first thing that we see right out the gates is that there is detrimental judgment awaiting the people of God. Look back at verses 14 through 16. I'll read the passage one more time, just these three verses, and then we'll make some observations. It says this, verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Then in verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountains shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. We start with a very sober couple of verses here. This is actually a continuation of the train of thought that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Sadly, Hosea's message, in in large scope, is basically that whenever God looks at his people Israel, he finds rampant resistance and injustice. The people have strayed. They have wandered from their God. They have wandered from the Lord. This is a story about Israel's unfaithfulness, but it doesn't stop there. This is also a story about what God is going to do about it. In the last few chapters, what we saw was that Hosea really specified what was happening in Israel. Phil has pointed this out. They've abandoned their posture of dependence. That's at the heart of their disobedience. They're no longer depending on the Lord. They're depending on themselves. 
Their eyes have wandered to look to their own strength. They're looking to the kings instead of to the one who gave them their kings. They're looking to their wealth instead of the God who has all the resources of heaven at his disposal. Now they're looking to these idols that they have formed and fashioned with their own hands instead of the God who has formed and fashioned everything that we experience in life. And he's in, he has formed and fashioned all of us. Look at what we see scattered throughout the last couple of chapters. Hosea 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, I cannot, or they cannot find iniquity or sin. Chapter 13, verse 2. Now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver. Chapter 13, 6. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. That is the common theme scattered throughout these last couple of chapters. It's self-confidence. It's it's self-sufficiency. We have our own money. We have our own kings. We can form and fashion our own gods who will do whatever we want them to do. We have orchestrated our own lives in such a way that we can take care of ourselves. That's what's happening all throughout the land of Israel. This is a common occurrence in our own day and age, right? I I have an acquaintance. He lives down in Laguna Beach, lives near the ocean. He's got all the money he could ever want generational wealth. His, his in-laws live on some cliffs overlooking the beach, right? He goes on his annual vacations down to Costa Rica every year. He's got the surfboards. He's got all the toys. He gets to do whatever he really wants. And if you ask him, what do you think about God? His response is simple. Why would I need a God? What, what is he going to give me that I don't already have? I got the house. I got the vacations. I got the toys. I have my freedom. What's God got to offer me? That's, that's literally how he responds to the question. That is the mindset that enters into any heart whenever prosperity is experienced. When we start to get a grasp of our lives, we start to get things under control for ourselves, our dependency on God begins to vanish, right? We start to depend on ourselves. We start to trust in ourselves, in our own resources, in our own abilities. And I'd be mistaken if I failed to also mention that the same mindset can enter into any heart. You don't have to be prosperous to think in this sort of way. You can be broke, and you can still have the same mindset. Think about your own heart. Could you be classified as a fixer? You try to get things done for yourself, like, oh, I'll I'll make sure this gets done, right? I'll make sure this happens. Maybe I'm kind of over-stereotyping, forgive me for that, but many of the wives in here, you're probably thinking, oh, I know exactly what it's like to be close to a fixer. Uh, Maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience, or rather my wife's experience. She knows what it's like to be close to a fixer. And sometimes, I mean... Actually, most of the time, she has to remind me, Josh, you can't fix people, and you can't fix me. 
I have to be reminded of that. Right? I think, I think if you're in that experience, you know it's kind, of, it's kind of offensive when your husband walks in the room and he's trying to fix you. You're like, wait a second, wait a second. Do, do I need fixing? Like, am I just another pipe that you're gonna put together or something? Like, what, what is this? We've all experienced that. We've all been on the receiving end of that. Maybe we've been on the giving end of that. Think about it, though. We are broken people. We are broken people. My, my wife knows that she is broken. She knows that she needs to be fixed, but before I get myself in trouble, she also knows that I am not the one to fix her, right? She has to look to God because God is the one who restores those who are broken. He is the one who mends. He is the one who fixes in any ultimate sense. That is not my, uh, within my abilities. That's not my job. We need to recognize that that is what has taken place in Israel. There are a bunch of fixers, I got my resources, I got my abilities, I have all the resources I need to make this happen. Why do I need a God who can do this for me? And believe it or not, nothing could be more offensive to God. He formed us, he fashioned us, he has created us, and he wants to care for us. And we try to take everything into our own control, and God is offended by that. In fact, that is heinous sin in his eyes, which is why we see such vivid language describing God's judgment of the Israelites, especially in the book of Hosea. As we saw last week, God compares himself to a bear separated from its cubs. God compares himself to a lion about to devour its prey. He compares himself to a leopard stalking a victim. And the prey is God's people. And this sort of vivid language doesn't end there. It continues into our passage today as we just saw. Here we see that God will send famine upon his people. Their wells will dry up. Their crops will not produce. God will strip Israel of its wealth. He will send her into poverty. And the language only gets more severe from there. As we see at the very end in verse 16 of chapter 13, God's depiction of his judgment, and these, these couple of lines are, are breathtaking. If you're reading this closely, you're probably thinking, I don't know if I am okay with this. It says here, God God is saying, I am going to rip open the wombs of of these women. I'm going to dash their children against the rocks. That probably doesn't sit well with many of you. Rightfully so. I think it's hard to grapple with this sort of language. I think one of the most surprising aspects of this passage is the fact that it seems like Hosea is drawing language from what we call the imprecatory psalms. If you've ever read the psalms, you've probably come across a few verses within the psalms that caused a little bit of unease in your own heart. Right? The imprecatory psalms are challenging to read because they're all about these individuals who's, that are looking to God and praying to God and asking God to pour out his judgment upon his enemies. Psalm 137, for, for instance, talks about this psalmist who's, who's praying for the destruction of Babylon. And within this psalm, we read about the children of these rebellious people being dashed against the rocks. You see the connection there? 
Notice the connection that's taking place in this passage. God's anger, which is reserved for his enemies, is now being poured out on his people. Right? The destruction reserved for God's enemies that have rebelled against him is now being pointed at the Israelites. You see, we need to recognize God is not unjust. The same standard to which he holds the Babylonians or any of his enemies is the same standard to which he holds his own people. The Israelites are being held to the same exact standard. God is not a God to be trifled with. That's what we need to take from this. Our God is not a God to be trifled with. Yes, he is patient, but do not mistake his patience for passivity. Yes, he is kind and he is merciful, but do not miscalculate his justice. Both will come to fruition. Yes, he will pour out his kindness. Yes, he will pour out his mercy, but he will also make sure that justice is enacted. If you want some gardening language, God is doing some intense pruning here. God is pruning his garden of every branch that withers and every, every tree that fails to produce fruit. God doesn't want bare stalks and he doesn't want poisonous grapes. All of this leads us back to Hosea 13, verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Believe it or not, I know, I know we read from this passage earlier, but believe it or not, this is actually a difficult verse to interpret. There's some complexity here. I want to make sure we see it and that we can appreciate it. Because at first reading, you're looking at it and you go, look, God is promising redemption. But we have to pay attention to the larger picture here. It seems as though God is throwing in this promise of redemption right in the middle of all of these declarations that impending doom is coming upon Israel. It feels as though there's like this tension. There's this back and forth between destruction and a promise of, of hope. And that tension is kind of difficult to reconcile. Is God going to devour the Israelites like a lion? Or is he going to redeem them? Or is he going to smash their children into pieces? Like, what do we make of this back and forth? Even within verse 14, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the very last line causes us to, to sense this tension right in this verse where it says that God's compassion is hidden from his eyes. So is he gonna redeem them or not? Is he gonna have compassion on them or not? I think the passage becomes even more difficult to really grapple with when we think about what took place over the course of history. Because when we back up and look at the actual trajectory of what happened to the Israelites, what we realize is that they didn't experience redemption from the Assyrian army. They weren't redeemed. They weren't protected from the Assyrians. God used the Assyrians in order to judge his people. God's promise of destruction stood. So the Assyrians came in and demolished Israel. 
the northern tribes. Jerry Wang, he points out that the language of verse 14 here should remind us of the exodus from Egypt. Right? God redeems Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt. He rescued Israel. He ransomed them. And yet here, what we see is that it's almost as though there's a reversal of the Egyptian redemption going on. God isn't rescuing them from Assyria. He's actually sending them back into slavery. So we have to ask again, what in the world do we make of verse 14? We know that death looms. We know that destruction is inevitable for the people of Israel. And yet we have what seems to be this promise for God's people and even for us today, right in the middle of all of this chaos. So we have to ask the question, what is going on here? You see, this people to whom Hosea wrote did not experience God's redemption. They did not receive compassion. Death actually did catch up to them, at least temporarily. I think the Apostle Paul looks at this passage correctly. Obviously, I think that. <laughs> Paul wrote part of the Bible, after all. I think he has some insight for us in how to read this passage. Monica read this earlier from 1 Corinthians 54 through 57 in chapter 15. Paul recognizes that the only way for us to understand what is happening here in Hosea is to understand it in light of the resurrection. The resurrection is the only way that this, this promise in the midst of all this doom and gloom makes any sense whatsoever. Let's, let's read that again from 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what we read in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. It is then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection Paul is making? Paul knew that the Assyrians eventually came into Israel and destroyed them. He knew that these promises of judgment that God is, is, is sending out to the people of Israel would stand. The Assyrians would take over. But Paul also recognized that this promise is a kernel of hope in the midst of all of these declarations of impending judgment. There is hope here for the people of God. Even though death will come, it will not have the final say. Even though the grave will consume victims, it will not declare the ultimate victory. Christ will. Even though death has a say in our current situation, it does not have the final say in our situation. We can cling to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus proves it. There is hope beyond the grave. Think about this. That is why Jesus came. Jesus came in order to accomplish this very mission. To satisfy both the judgment of God, the justice of God, and to show the kindness of God. Jesus came to do both of those. He, meant, he came in order to kind of ease this tension that we're feeling in Hosea. 
How is God gonna pour out judgment and yet also give hope of resurrection? Jesus is the answer. When he came to earth thousands of years ago on this very day and walked into Jerusalem, he did not walk into Jerusalem in order to sit on a throne. He walked into the praises of the people who were hoping and expecting that this is our king, let him reign on his throne. He walked in knowing though that that was not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was the cross. The ultimate goal was the cross because on the other side of the cross was resurrection. On the other side of God's judgment being poured out on the Son was the resurrection on the Son, which then gives us hope for our own resurrection. In, in the cross and in the resurrection, what we see is that God's judgment is so severe that it took the death of the Son of God in order to satisfy its demands. And at the same time, God's loving kindness is so immense that he did the unthinkable by sending his Son in order to pay for the judgment that we deserve. All of that took place in the cross. And in the resurrection, we have proof that what Jesus did on the cross actually accomplish what it was intended to, to accomplish. This people, this people in Israel who are looking down the barrel at God's judgment, they are also being offered this hope. On the other side of this judgment, there is hope for you. There is a promise of resurrection if, if you cling to God in faith and if you repent of your sins. So that leads us to chapter 14. We've seen that detrimental judgment awaits the people of God, but we also see there is hope. And the way that that hope is accessed is through repentance and faith. I think it's interesting that most of the people that you talk to uh, on a regular basis, just day-to-day -day basis in our culture, most of the people you talk to believe that there is some sort of hope after life. Right? Most everyone you talk to is gonna think there is some sort of afterlife. Obviously, there are some who would deny that, but many of the people you talk to would think, yeah, there's some sort of hope after life, and it's gonna be relatively enjoyable, I assume. You know, that's kind of the demeanor a lot of people have. I was watching uh, a show uh, just this last week, and you, you heard in the show, like one of the guys is talking about how uh, his, he, he, he was... His friend had died, and so he was like performing in this competition for the sake of his friend. His friend is in heaven watching down on him. He's right there with him. All this is for his friend. Everyone in the crowd's going, yeah, man, that's like beautiful. Because it, it kind of jives with where we are as a culture. Like we like this idea of some sort of vague spirituality. We don't like to put much concrete uh, substance to it. But you know, there, there is some sort of hope beyond the grave. But that is not the Christian message. The Christian message is concrete. It is clear. What we have in the pages of scripture is a clear demonstration that the only uh, way to access the hope promised to us in the resurrection is through faith and repentance. It is only through hopeful repentance that we gain access to the grace of God in Christ. If you want to taunt death, with Paul and Hosea. If you wanna be able to look at death in the face and say, you have no hold over me, you must cling to Jesus. 
As we look at Hosea, we get a a glimpse of what repentance and faith look like. I want us to turn to to Hosea 14. Look at verse 1 and uh, verse 2 and verse 3. It says this, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Here we get a a, a glimpse of what proper faith and repentance actually look like. So let's just walk through these ideas. What, What does this verse say about repentance? First of all, repentance is turning from sin. That's what we can clearly draw from our passage here. Look at verse three. God is telling Israel to say this. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. The call of repentance is a call to turn from our former ways. Israel has been condemned for these exact faults, and now they are being called to, to return to God and to leave these, these given faults. They have trusted in foreign powers like Assyria for help, so God is telling them that the Assyrians won't save you. No governmental powers can save you. They have looked to their own wealth and their own power, as we read here. We will not ride on horses, which you might be thinking, like, how is that a sign of wealth and power? Maybe in Kentucky. But like here, like, what does this have to do with power? Remember, the sign of a, the horse was, was the sign of might. It was the power, the sign of power. Right? That was the sign of self-proficiency. Today, we might not use horses to prove how powerful we are. Instead, we might use a stock portfolio. Like, look at all the money that I have accumulated. Maybe you, you put your trust in your personal supply, uh, supply of like weaponry and ammunition and generators and freeze-dried meals and some bunker that you bought in Idaho like with crypto so that the government could never find out about it. And I know you're, you're laughing about it, but I know some of you have probably done that or at least you're like really contemplating like, I got my Bitcoin ready, I'm coming, right? God is telling us to turn away from that sort of mindset, that self-sufficiency, self-reliance. If only I had my bunker, I'd be set. God is saying, I am your refuge, I am your bunker. Look to Jesus, and Jesus, you have all of the refuge that you could ever desire. And that doesn't mean that we're gonna escape any sort of condemnation or any, any sort of difficulties or sufferings today. It means on the other side of those sufferings, there is hope. But as we look through this verse, we see another aspect of true repentance. It's the fact that God is calling them to turn from their foreign gods, right? Turn from your gods, your handmade gods. Which is interesting, right? Because this is, this is the, the age-old story of Israel. Basically, from day one, they have been worshiping false gods. Remember what happened, like, the moment they came out of Egypt in the wilderness? They bowed down to a calf. Like this, this golden calf that they built for themselves. And if you read that story carefully, what you realize is that they're worshiping this golden calf while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. Right? It's like, 
He's up there on that mountain, and there's all of these signs of God going on. There's, there's darkness and fire, and you're building a golden calf to worship. You get to King Saul, and he's going to, there's this interesting story about him going to this necromancer who's going to like bring Samuel from the grave to give him some sort of vision, right? It's weird. Uh, then you have King Solomon, who marries a bunch of uh, foreigners, who then he, he brings them into Israel, and what do they do? They bring their own gods back with them, and the people of Israel get entangled in this idolatry. You have Jeroboam, who sets up two calves in Samaria. He's like, oh yeah, you think those, those uh, Israelites in the wilderness did it? did it right? I'm gonna do it better. I'm gonna do two golden calves. Uh, let me up one up their, their disobedience and rebellion. God is showing us throughout the pages of Scripture that this is a temptation for the people of God. It always has been and it always will be. We've said this multiple times throughout the course of this, this uh, series that you do not need a physical figurine in order to worship an idol, right? We can make anything an idol. We have this profound ability to make anything an idol. As John Calvin used to say, he says that the, the heart is an idol factory. You don't need the physical, the physical idol. You can make anything an idol. We all want to find some sort of constant, some sort of refuge. I need my financial security. Or maybe for you it's something as simple as a pet. <laughs> that pet gives me what I need. Another famous quote from church history from St. Augustine, who's speaking of the same reality, and he says, the heart is always wandering until it finds its rest in Christ. We, we have hearts within us that will always seek to find some sort of refuge in this life. Seven, eight figures or whatever it may be in some bank account, preferably somewhere offshore. Uh, maybe it's something as trite as a dog, right? But that is, that is the heart of the human being. That is the temptation that rests within our souls. Seek for refuge. And what Jesus is saying is, I am your refuge. I am your king. I am the one with all the resources of heaven at my disposal. You do not need to trust in your wealth. You do not need to trust in your kings or anyone or anything in this life. Look to me which leads us back to Hosea 14, verses one through three. What we see here in verses one and two is that repentance from, from rebellion, repentance from dead works, is not necessarily enough. Because if you repent from your dead works and you don't know where you're gonna turn to, you're probably just gonna end up in more rebellion. So what we have here is a clear depiction that you turn from your rebellion and you turn to God. Look at verses one and two. It says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Turn from, from Assyria, turn from your horses, and turn to the Lord. And notice what he says, like, Show, show your faith in God. Here he says, come to the Lord and pay with bulls. 
I, I, I think it goes without saying, we, we don't necessarily need to come to God with like physical sacrifices, right? I, I hope you know that. You're not like going to the park or going to some priest and saying, here's my bull, uh, let's, let's slaughter it. No, that is not the call of the Christian, right? Here's the distinction between our situation and the Israelites' situation here in Hosea. We are called to turn to a greater high priest and we are called to look to a greater sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats will not ultimately appease the judgment of God. The faulty high priests of Israel couldn't do it. So we look to a better high priest, Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a a high priest forever. If you want to anchor for your soul, if you want to find rest for your wandering heart, you look to Christ because he has entered the holy place for us. Not only that, he brings us with him into the holy place. So a little background on what the, the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's looking at the Old Testament law and he's talking about the fact that Jesus gets to enter into the holy place. Right? For the people of Israel, they worshiped at the temple. The temple had an, an outer region and then it had this inner region within it, the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, that's where God dwelt. Right? That was where the presence of God was for the people of Israel in, in an ultimate sense. Right? That was the closest you could get to the unbuffered presence of God. And yet, what we see here in Hebrews is that Christ gets us access to that inner sanctuary. I don't know if you're familiar with like the way the Old Testament works, but this is revolutionary because the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and he only went once a year. But here in Hebrews, Jesus is giving us access to the presence of God. He's saying, I've gone through the curtain. You can come with me. Come with me straight to the presence of God where you can experience his unbuffered, unadulterated, unfiltered presence. That's what we have to look forward to. So don't don't miss this. When you turn to Jesus in faith, you get a very specific type of hope. You don't receive a hope that says, I'm gonna have victory in this life. I am gonna have some sort of guarantee that I am never gonna have any difficulties from here on out. God doesn't promise any sort of financial peace or, or, or promise of, of peace and prosperity. He offers us something far grander. He says, come into my presence. Come with me. Stand before the throne room of God. Stand in awe. So as we begin to tie this into what we have seen already, what we're seeing is that the resurrection is promised and Jesus is our, is our way there and the way to access that is through re, uh, uh, repentance and faith. Now before we, we move on, I wanna make one more comment about what we see here, especially in verse three. Notice the very last line in verse three. He says, in you, the orphan finds mercy. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This gives us a little, more, um, a little more clarity on what it means to repent and believe. 
mean, this is such. Think about, think about an orphan. And think about how little self-reliance an orphan can have. Like an infant child left for dead on the side of a road. There's no, no ability to trust in your own wealth at that point. There's no ability to trust in anything except that someone out there will hear you. And this is a beautiful portrait of self, uh, of the denial of self-sufficiency. I think he's painting a picture of an individual who is completely helpless because it is there that we start to understand what it looks like to depend on God. And so I ask, do you have that sort of mindset when you look to God? When you find yourself in a difficult situation, do you really think of yourself as an orphan, left for dead on the side of the road? Your only help is God. I can't make this work. I can't fix this situation. I need to look outside of myself to a God who is able. This story reminds me of Moses. If you remember Moses when he was an infant, there was this scene where Pharaoh had just decreed that every male in Israel be put to death or all of the Israelites who were in Egypt at this point, if they were a male infant, they needed to be put to death because he was afraid. The Israelites were growing in number. They were getting bigger. They were getting larger. And he was, he was afraid of what was happening. And so Moses' parents decided to act in faith. They trusted in God, and they decided to send their baby boy along the river in a handmade raft in hopes that God would miraculously save their child. And so off Moses goes, and what happens? Moses is found in the reeds by Pharaoh's daughter. Jeremy Pierre, he describes this scene in his children's Bible, uh, God With Us. He writes about Moses floating down the river. He said, all baby Moses had to do was cry. And the only lady, both important enough and kind enough to help, heard him. A princess of Egypt loved this baby from the river. I mean, think about this scene. God's kindness was poured out on this crying child, just left, left for dead, essentially. They're hoping that God is gonna act somehow, but they, they don't know how God's gonna do it, so they just send him off, hoping that maybe, in God's providence, this baby will be saved, and sure enough, God acts. That's, that is a glimpse of what truly trusting in God looks like. This orphan, all you can do is look to God and cry for help. That's all I got, tears. God says, that's the heart I'm after. That's what I'm looking for. And so when God grants us restoration, we also need to ask now, what does this restoration look like? We've seen there is a hope for resurrection after the grave. Yes, judgment is coming, but there's a hope beyond the judgment. We also see that repentance and faith is the way to access that hope that transcends the grave. Now what we see in verses four through eight of chapter 14 is we get a picture of what this gracious restoration looks like. Right, here's what it looks like. Verse four, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. 
They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So in response to repentance and humble dependence on God, we find this beautiful scene of God's restoration. At the heart of these promises is this idea that God wants to transform his people into this beautiful vineyard, this garden. He wants them to start producing fruit. Um, this, is, this is interesting, right? Because this is actually lining up with this theme of garden and vineyard that we see strung throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, look at how it's detailed here in this, this passage. We see that God is healing their, their apostasy. He's gonna make them blossom like a lily. He's gonna make them look like the trees of Lebanon. And for background, Lebanon was famous for its beautiful cypress trees and for all of its vineyards. Be kind of like comparing uh, comparing like God's people to Napa Valley or the Redwoods, right? Northern California Redwoods. It's kind of what you would have going on here. The people would have an image of what Lebanon looks like. That's what the people of God are going to turn into. And, and let me point out, he's not saying that Israel's land is going to produce crops, produce trees. He's saying that the people are going to produ begin producing fruit. Right? The people are going to be transformed. And that's where we have this, this theme develop for us throughout the pages of Scripture. In Genesis 2, we have the story of the Bible beginning with a garden. God plants his people in a garden. Tend to it. See to it. But what we find in Genesis 3 is that this people, they, they were not fit for the garden. And so they were cast out. And all through scripture, we basically have this story of God's people making their way back to his presence in a garden. You go all the way to the very end of the story of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses one through two. Let me read that. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were, of, or were for the healing of the nations. Right, those are the bookends of the Bible. The people of Israel, or the uh, people of God placed in a garden, cast out because they proved that they were not the type of people fit for the garden. And then they are, fast forward all the way to the very end, of scripture's story and we see the people of God back in a garden, in God's presence. And all throughout, what we have is this picture of God slowly preparing his people for that day when they will enter back into the presence of God. All throughout the scriptures, we see God comparing his people to a vineyard. Let me turn you into the type of vineyard that you need to be so that you can come into the final vineyard and enter into my presence. What's interesting is throughout the Old Testament, we see all of these, these little illustrations about God's people being a vineyard. But what we typically see is God is condemning Israel because they're not the type of vineyard that they were called to be. Here in Hosea, we have something unique. 
Because here he's saying, guess what? I am going to make you into the type of people I want you to be. So in like Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, we have this story uh, of this very thing. Let me read verses 1 through 7. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I also commanded the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the typical picture we have in the Old Testament. When God looks at his people and he says, you're called to be my vineyard, he then says, I'm not finding the type of fruit I was looking for. Instead, I'm finding poisonous vines. Instead, I'm finding bloodshed. I'm finding rebellion. And we see this in Psalm 80. We see this in Jeremiah 2. We see this in the New Testament in Romans 11. God's people failed to be the type of garden that God wanted them to be. So what do we have here in Hosea? God is saying, let me do something for you. Let me transform you into the type of garden that I want you to be. Notice in verse eight, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In other words, you need to attach yourself to God. We need to attach ourselves to the root so that we can begin to produce fruit. So what does this remind us of? This reminds us of what Jesus says in John 15. If we wanna produce fruit, we need to look to Jesus. We need to abide in Christ, the true and better vine. See, Jesus is the plan for transforming God's people into a beautiful garden. So hang with me for a moment. Uh, Hang with me for a moment. If, If we want to understand this concept, what we need to see is this connection that the resurrection will come, and when we get to that resurrection, we will be able to produce good fruit in that moment. But... Our our hope of the resurrection is not only future, it is also present. As we think of what we see in the larger scope of the Bible, we recognize that our hope in the resurrection has current realities. We can produce fruit now. God wants to transform us now. He wants to make us into the kind of garden he has destined us to be now. 
And so when we think through, again, John 15, or rather Romans 6, let's go there, what we see is this promise that the resurrection does have hope for us in the here and the now. We were buried this for, therefore, in verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that is our current hope. The resurrection isn't merely a hope for some future day. It is a hope for us in the here and in the now. So to use, again, garden imagery, God is in the process of transforming us into garden people. He wants us to be fit for the final eternal day when we will enter into the the eternal vineyard of God and begin to participate in it. And again, like I said, that starts right now. John 15, verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He prunes, right? Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So what we find is that Jesus is the true vine. He is our pathway into that eternal vineyard of God. He was the faithful Israel. He was the better son. He proved to be the legitimate vineyard of God, the true garden. And if we want to experience that garden, we attach ourselves to the the true vine today. So again, if we want to experience the resurrection, that future hope, we attach ourselves to Christ now through repentance and faith. And when we do that, we are being transformed into the people of God who are suited for the eternal garden in his presence. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the message of Hosea. We're thankful that we were able to gather over the course of the last couple of months and hear from uh, this prophet. We're thankful that we could experience the promises um, that are set out for us here, that we could see with our own eyes the fact that you want to offer hope for a better day, for a day of resurrection. We pray that even this week as we celebrate Holy Week, that we would be able to anticipate that day and look forward to it with gladness. We pray uh, that you would do this all um, for the good of your church and for our own personal joy. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.